it's multiple characters in Voyager who play musical instruments. I was wondering if they ever considered having Captain Janeway play one, and if so, which one would you have wanted them to play? And, uh, that question is so absurd. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I love to strum the harp when I'm not at warp 9.9. brought up to me by the producers. Do you want to, do you want to? I said, not really. Not any more than I want to produce a bunch of lizards with um, Lieutenant Paris. <laughs> Transfer complete. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I am live from Las Vegas, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, thinking very deeply about termites. And we have a very special guest, beaming in for the Las Vegas extravaganza, Mr. Scott Hardy. Yes, I have once again returned. I've traded in my tuxedo for a jumpsuit, and I'm ready to fly. Why were you in a tuxedo uh, again, Scott? Well, uh, apart from the convention, which I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, in depth shortly, I also got married on this trip. Congratulations, uh, Scott and Cam. Yes. Yes, yes. It's a very exciting event, and I'm happy that all of you can hear about our great joy. Scott, do you want to maybe just sum up the wedding for the listeners? Well, you and I, of course, walked down the aisle hand in hand. Mm. No, I, I got married uh, to my long-term partner, Hannah. Uh, it was a wonderful day. I thank you both for joining us. All of our friends came along. Hannah's family came along as well. And we celebrated uh, early into the night. <laughs> um, and all went to bed early. It was a lovely day. And I'm, I'm sure you'll see some photos online. And we're now recording this uh, on your birthday as well. So you yes. really had kind of a, a packed week here, Scott. It's all about me. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we want to thank you so much for joining us on the show Let's dive right into the convention. This is the first time we have been back for STLV in three years now. A little surreal coming in. I did not know really what to expect, uh, ranging from you know COVID restrictions to just how the programming would feel. Uh, jumping out of it, uh, I this is kind of the closest to normal that I could have expected, despite you know you're, you're getting your uh, vaccine like. Uh, checks uh you're putting on like your uh masks while you're in there but beyond that it, it kind of felt like real las vegas star trek convention again what, what were your initial takeaways uh from this well i i was uh genuinely surprised that i made it this far into the holiday this is obviously post-convention and i have not got covid19 uh, which is interesting. I thought this would be, I think we'd all be taken out by the end of this trip. So, and everyone that we know has been absolutely fine. So, apart from wearing masks at the convention, uh, it felt like a normal Vegas time. Yeah, before I flew out, I was certain, absolutely certain, at least one of us would be sick and maybe not able to make the convention. And that hasn't been the case. So, and we've seen people out at the bars every night uh, celebrating. So, yeah, as you said, Tyler, like this is the closest we've seen to a normal Star Trek con outside of just obviously the sight of many, 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 many con goers all wearing masks in the arena. Yeah, so I, listeners, I am pro-safety, uh, but now 
Cam feels very um, good about himself for sending me all these uh, anti-vax conspiracy theories mm, yeah. uh, for years on time. But um, I guess what I'm getting at is I'm learning all the wrong lessons from this, in which we put ourselves in very dangerous situations and nothing really happened to us. Um, but Risk that, is our business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, people be safe. I think we got very, very fortunate. There are reports on like some of the uh, Facebook groups that people did come away with COVID, which mm. is understandable. It, it's going to happen to other people. Uh, we're all uh, quite well vaccinated, so maybe it's just sheer luck here. But um, getting into the programming here, um, so it's a bit of a different format in which you had the secondary ballroom about, uh, you'd say about half a mile away from uh, where the uh, main auditorium was in the on the 26th floor of the Bally's Hotel. It's usually at the Rio Hotel and Casino off Strip here in Las Vegas. And the, you know, main ballroom and the secondary ballroom, they're right across the hall from each other. This is a bit more of a trek. And I found I was frequently going up to the 26th uh, story and enjoying myself with some of those smaller panels, more of the behind the scenes sort of stuff going on there. And uh, it was much less busy. Uh, far fewer bottlenecks that you'd experience. Um, the programming was a little bit uh, more different. So, you know, you're not going to get Sonequa Martin Green on like the tertiary stages or anything like that. Um, I found this quite more calm on the 26th floor. I kind of liked it up there. I just wish the uh, the programming was a little bit more consistent at times. Because, um, Cam, I think you pointed out there were a lot of stars who had like a smattering of people sitting in the main ballroom. And they could have easily packed into some of the tertiary ballrooms. Yeah, maybe the best example of that was the uh, original series guest stars. Um, where, at this point, you know, a lot of the original series guest stars have passed on. So the people who were on the panel were a lot of, you know, you know William Shatner's stunt double. Um, the woman who played Isis the cat at the end of Assignment Earth. Like, not the big, kind of iconic guest stars you might think of. So they're not going to draw a huge audience. But they put them in this massive, you know, Bally's showroom... And it was very, very spread out to be kind in terms of the audience. Whereas had they put that up on the 26th floor in the smaller stage, it would have been more intimate. You would have had the people, you know, the original series fans just kind of gathered around them. It might have felt a little more warm and inviting versus a massive, you know, airport hangar with like, I don't know, maybe 80 people there. Yeah. Um, the other thing, look, we kicked things off with Denise Crosby. She was the first big guest in the main ballroom there. And, um, you know, of course, she's going to get the question about, uh, you know, are, are you going to be on Star Trek uh, Picard season three? Uh, she did give an answer. Um, it was a very kind of opaque answer. What did it tell you? And I don't know. These aren't really spoilers so much as I, I think what anyone out there can surmise based on what we know. But uh uh, Scott, what did you make of Denise Crosby's uh, responses here? Well, I, I'm not surprised she shared the information because I think her contribution to the episode uh, at hand will be very small. I think you'll maybe get a voice line or a photo from her at best. You're not getting Denise Crosby resurrected as Tasha Yar. She brings the Enterprise out and all the crew go for a jolly. That's not quite what we're getting. It was uh, Armis's prank the entire time. <laughs> She's not really dead. Got him. I wondered if we might just see like the hologram Tasha, um, from when she passed away, yeah. maybe being used or something like that. I, I'm generally curious about what kind of the HD like render would look like at this point. It, like it has been upgraded uh, for Blu-ray releases, so 
it could be passable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's totally a possibility there. Uh, we also had I I skipped most of this. Uh, how was George Decay, Cam? It was um, I think a pretty solid George Decay panel. He has a tendency to do the greatest hits. Um, this time felt a little bit um, removed from that. Like he had some kind of different types of stories. A big part of his panel was honestly paying tribute to the former you know co-stars of his on the show and who have passed away and that is kind of maybe something i'll just comment now was we had michelle nichols pass away fairly shortly before the convention and we talked about in our lead up you know what would they do and um they did do one select panel up on the 26th floor which was a tribute to michelle nichols hosted by you know adam malin uh who is the you know co-prez of uh, creation um, and a couple other guests, but they also just found ways to work it organically into almost like every major panel of the weekend, and that was a big part of George Takei's, was telling stories about meeting Michelle, how she was like the first one to welcome him onto the show, and just about her good humor, and those tributes kind of continued through the weekend. We'll talk about more about other panels, but you know, Sonequa Martin-Green talked about Michelle Nichols, and in that panel I saw, the one, you know, hosted by Adam Malin, one of my favorite things of the weekend was them showing old footage of her, uh, Nichelle Nichols, at conventions and seeing, you know, Tyler, we started going to these in 2014. Nichelle Nichols was not in the best of straights as the years progressed. To see footage of her from like the 90s and I think the 80s, just like on fire, just in complete control of a room was really exciting to see and really funny. And I was actually very thankful they put on that panel. Yeah, and that was immediately followed up by... uh Rod Roddenberry and Trevor Roth, as well as some other executives involved uh, with this big project called the Roddenberry Archives. Uh, Scott, what what are the Roddenberry Archives, please? Well, Tyler, I think that's the wrong question to ask. I think you should be asking, what could the Roddenberry Archives give us? Archives. Yeah, archives, yeah. Yeah. uh, A baffling display from the Roddenberry team, because frankly, they had a pitch that they didn't know how to pitch or sell. They had a product they don't know how to use. I mean, it's a good idea, I suppose, if you can justify and figure out what the idea is for listeners. They're basically doing recreations, digital recreations in 3D, high def of sets uh, from the show, of moments from cartoons and things like that, trying to bring them to life for the next next generation, as, you, as it were. But um, the question I think all of us had at the end of the panel was... To what end? Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was it was very unclear what this endeavor, what the raison d'etre of this endeavor was. And they kept saying, like, yeah, we're not going to create products. We're not going to commercialize this. And I was thinking the entire time, like, you could make a lot of money off of this. And you are investing incredible amounts of money creating, like, VR recreations of various iterations of the 1701. I got to go upstairs to the 26th floor. I, I had an Xbox controller uh, that I was able to grab and, and stand in front of a big monitor and navigate my way around um, the Enterprise uh, bridge as it appeared in the cage. I got to go down a turbo lift and uh, walk into the briefing room, the uh, transporter room, um, Pike's quarters. It, it was quite immersive, quite impressive. And they have plans to do this for the iterations, the various iterations of the 1701, whether it's a refit and even the 1701A. And I'm like, there are people that will pay a lot of money to do this. Why aren't you commercializing this? And, and I think Scott and I were talking like, most likely it could be something to do with um, tax purposes, also not trying to run up against, you know, CBS Paramounts in terms of the commercialization 
um, conflicts there, but it, it's all coming from what Gene Roddenberry had been curating, keeping, and holding on to for you know 56 years in terms of the Star Trek properties. It, it was very, very confusing what this was. It was both, yes, confounding and impressive. Yes. Because like <laughs> we keep talking about how confusing it was, but what they actually showed us is the sort of thing I would totally be down to you know pay for an experience because they were showing they'd cast a, an actress to play the character of Colt, from the cage and they were yeah recreating you know the cage enterprise and it looked phenomenal we also saw them do a you know recreation of Nimoy Spock and the way they were talking it sounded like they wanted to do you know various other ships and really just recreate the entire universe of Star Trek but the thing they kept saying was pointing at the audience this isn't for you this is for future generations <laughs> and so I'm like well this looks cool and like something I would want to see but they're telling me it's not for me yeah so as you you know said up front, we don't know what this we is. We don't for. know what this is. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I should point out though, uh, you mentioned a recreation of Spock. They literally hired an actor who looks uh, strikingly like Leonard Nimoy. They did him up in makeup and costuming, and then to make him look exactly like Nimoy, they did some CG touch-ups and all that sort of stuff. It, it was amazing, and they even had him uh, speaking lines that only ever appeared on the animated series. So they're recreating scenes um, from the animated series, even with the Helmsman Arix, or Eryx, I should say, at that point. You know, the, the dude with the, the third arm uh, bursting out of his sternum there. It, it was cool, impressive stuff. To what end, Scott? I don't know. So I, I do have one theory about them saying it, for it being for the next generation. Maybe they were talking directly to the gold patrons at the front, because okay. frankly, they may not make it past this week. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> they were talking to the people in the GA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you guys are getting this. <laughs> um, I will also point this out. Um, this is the first panel I think somebody pointed out that um, there were some problems with whoever was in charge of spelling the guests' names mm. when uh, they're in the main auditorium, and there's like this big digital banner above the guests' Uh, heads and uh, they identified Rod Roddenberry as Rod Mary. And then a panel to follow in the main ballroom was uh, Don Lewis and Tawny Newsom, who of course play Captain Freeman and um, Ensign Mariner on Star Trek Lower Decks. They misspelled Don Lewis's name. That wasn't it. It, it was uh, uh, the Deep Space Nine panel the next day. Uh, Sirach Lofton was spelled as um, Cirrus Lofton. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, but I think, Cam, you pointed out uh, by the third day, they put an end to that. I was looking, and I think yeah. maybe somebody got a little bit reamed out by uh, the bosses, uh, so to speak, here. I think so. I mean, as we learned in journalism school, Tyler, name error, 50% off your grade. Yes, yes. Uh, and we know that creation was struggling this year. They were very upfront about that because of COVID. They lost a lot of employees. They said, they came out and said, we lost 33 people. And I turned to you, Cam, was like, did they die? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of disorganization in various things like photo ops, lines, and things like that through the weekend. And it does, it does seem like creation was... Um, they were struggling with very few people, it seems, to help run the convention. And 
I'm guessing maybe the spelling fell into that or something, but yeah. the fact was they ironed that out, yeah, after that second day. Uh, coming out of the Lower Decks panel, uh, you know, Don Lewis and Tony Newsom were great, just full of life and energy. I'm, uh, I'm so glad when we have that coming from, like, these uh, new, this new era of television series. Um, uh, tiny little spoiler, Donnie, or uh, Tawny Newsom, I should say. Uh, Donnie is a great name to call the mother-daughter duo right there. <laughs> but, um, um, uh, you know, she did reveal that uh, for the crossover episode, which uh, I, I figure many folks have uh, heard about, a slight spoiler there, but there will be a Star Trek Strange New Worlds crossover episode of Star Trek Lower Decks. And Tawny Newsom did confirm that she will be wearing a, uh, a uniform in which um, her sleeves couldn't just roll them up. They had to be kind of sewn into the uniform itself. And uh, she complained about that, but I think it was all good fun, though. But uh, it, was just, it was just cool hearing about that sort of stuff. And it seems like it's just her and Boimler. That's my takeaway. Yeah, who are crossing over into live action. So, um, I don't know. I, 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 I dug that panel. I did get to squeeze in a question. It was, a, it was not a very good question because I realized we were like... Uh, 95% done this panel and nobody had asked them about the uh, Strange New Worlds crossover. The person directly in front of me landed some question in which the moderator took it upon himself to throw that question at them and then I just struggled and I, I asked them something about like, I don't know, were you able to look at your animated renders and do something for inspiration with regards to your characters uh, in your performances and, and Tawny Newsom's like... Yeah, they just don't share anything with us, which is totally understandable. It's kind of the answer that I expected, but um, yeah. It was a great way to end that panel. Uh, yeah. Well, just the panel before was also a real fun one with uh, Bob Picardo. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask him about uh, appearing in uh, Hail Caesar, the uh, Coen Brothers movie. I I was literally the last one up before they uh, said no more questions, and so that was kind of a bummer. But um, here's what I want to point out. Bob Picardo, Denise Crosby... They got, like, between 30 and 45 minutes all to themselves, which is great. Mm. You got to kind of do deep dives with them. There were panels coming up um, in which you had, like, eight people on, on stage, and it was generally two or three of the bigger names would be getting all the questions directed at them. And you'd have the moderators kick it off for the first half and make sure everybody gets to answer a moderator question. But after that, I think the show or the, the, uh, the convention could benefit very much for from spreading people out maybe up into the 26th floor or just doing smaller panels. I think three or four. I think four tops is like kind of the, the perfect Goldilocks number for these sorts of panels here. I don't I don't hold too much of a grudge when it comes to this because I think a lot of that has to do with uh, actors' schedules. They're, they're just not available. And Creation wants to squeeze the most amount of time getting photo ops and autographs out of these people so they can get their cut too. I totally get that. Uh, it does feel like a waste when you have the whole Strange New Worlds cast on stage instead of having a couple at a time. And I think they've maybe learned bad lessons from the TNG panels and the Voyager panels. When you put that group of people together, you know, you can have the full cast of Voyager there, and it's going to be an uproarious, hilarious panel. Same with the TNG cast. They deliver every single time I've seen them as a big group. But that's not the case for every single group. Like, there's different dynamics. You know, you put the DS9 group all together, and it's kind of like attending a funeral sometimes. Like, they are a very downbeat group. And you'll, you know, you don't have that kind of, like, explosion of energy you do at some of the others. Whereas you break them up, and you can actually have really fun pairings, 
Or even if it's maybe two more serious actors, you put them together in a panel and they're going to go much more deep dive in terms of their process and their inspirations than they're able to on like a eight person panel. And by serious actors, you're talking about serious Slofton. Um, yeah. <laughs> serious uh, Slofton. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So look, uh, the next day we got to see some stuff from like uh, the Discovery crew. Cam, you and I were discussing this. Mm. What, what takeaway from the television series did you walk away from with regards to the Discovery panel that we got there? With like uh, Sneakwa Martin-Green, uh, Mary Chifo, who played Laurel in the first season, uh, Ian Alexander, who of course plays Grey. What was your takeaway from uh, about the television show itself? Well, let's see. Okay, Sneakwa Martin-Green really dug the Species 10C story. Um, I got... Nothing. It was a lot of them just talking about how wonderful it is to work on the show and how much they adore their cast members. And I, I, a lot of it comes down to the questions that people are getting. If you're asking a very general question, like, what lessons did you learn from Star Trek? Or if you could speak to Gene Roddenberry today, what would you ask him about? I don't know how people are supposed to give you good answers for those kinds of questions. Those, they were frequently filled in, like, just variations on those kinds of questions where... You'll want to be specific there, and we didn't really pick up much from the show itself. You know, one specific question is like to see Sinequa Martin Green is like, uh, who would you prefer as your love interest? You know, Ash Tyler or you know Cleveland Booker? She she chose Booker. Sure, I get it. The smart choice. Yeah, but it's just like I don't know. These these aren't great questions that that are being thrown their way. I, I take that question over. In uh, episode three of season four, uh, pudding pop. I, I turned across pudding pop. Yeah, pudding pop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why my voice went there. Sorry, guys. But um, I like your American accent. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, that those deep dive questions, and Bill Shatner, who we'll get to, you know, had a question like that, and he had no idea how to feel to answer that question because yeah. who remembers what they did in a gig three years ago or thirty or sixty years ago? I think the solution to this issue. Because creation in the past has struggled to find the balance between audience questions and moderated questions. We've seen some panels in past years where it was like moderated for like 90% of the panel and then only like one or two, you know, audience questions. This year, I think they were very good about doing half and half. Yeah. But I think maybe the moderator should have handled maybe some of the more, you know, season specific questions and then maybe let the audience take over because it didn't work leaving that stuff to the audience. Like the Lower Decks, Strange New Worlds crossover stuff. Yeah. That took until like 95% of the panel was over until it was even brought up there. Uh, you know, we, we also had like the Strange New World stuff where it's not a bad question. The, the moderator is asking like, how did you get the job? To me, I'm curious about the answers. I would prefer to have read it on like, I don't know, uh, like a blog post or something like that rather than devoting... I think I took, like, to get through everybody, about, what, like, 18 minutes of this 45-minute panel mm -hmm. to hear their answers about, you know, yeah, and then I auditioned, and then I got the call back, and they said I had the job, and I didn't even know what I was auditioning for. I said, okay, that's, that's kind of what I expected there. What are you looking for in a question? I want, like, very specific stories, stuff that I did not know before, or something that was revelatory about the actor's approach to their character. I'm far more interested in behind-the-scenes sorts of panels, and we really did not get very many of those here. I, I went to an amazing uh, Star Trek Season 2 art direction panel, 
And uh, Jeffrey Mandel, he's been in and out of the orbit of the franchise for decades. You know, he, he was working on Insurrection. He had no problem, like, uh, shit-talking some of these movies. He said that uh, he got fired from the first JJ movie because he kept saying, like, pointing out stuff like, uh, you realize you're making the Enterprise, like, five times bigger than the original ship. Uh, they turfed him after about a week. He had no problem with that sort of stuff. I really enjoyed that. And there, there was a bit of a, a revelation I got from that panel. Um, again, maybe a season three spoiler, but, uh, yeah, if you want to look it up, you know, LeVar Burton has, um, indicated that we will be seeing a very familiar looking set. And Kemp, why don't we post this on our blog? Cause I don't think it's been circulated really. Um, he shared a photo of this very familiar set under construction for season three of Picard. That's the sort of stuff that I'd like to be getting from these panels, Scott, rather than questions like, um, there was one moderator, this was their go-to question, tell me a story about working on the show. And it's just like, just the, the deer in the headlights kind of looks on the faces of these um, actors. It's just like, uh, I don't know, like Cam, tell me a story about work. Well, there's so much to say. Yeah, it's an impossible question to answer in a really fun way. I mean, some people just ignored the question and yeah. just told some rando story that somehow delivered, you know, much better. But, like, I think with Strange New World, if you even want to keep it, like, to a general question, I would prefer they ask the actors, even, like, what was your toughest scene of the season? What was your favorite episode of the season? Something where at least they're talking specifically about something we saw on the show versus kind of this ethereal, like, it was a great experience, and we yeah. can't wait to do another season. Like, that doesn't tell me anything, even if it was a very generic boilerplate question. I'd like to know what was, you know, a scene that really challenged them throughout, you know, their ten episodes. That was Walter Canning. Yeah, so this year I had said, you know, look, time is creeping by, and, you know, today we are recording this actually on Scott's birthday. So not only did Scott have a wedding, he had a birthday in Las Vegas. Congratulations, Scott. But... You know, as time is creeping on and, you know, Michelle Nichols had passed, I was like, okay, I've got to make an effort to see more of these TOS stars who I love so much. So I did a photo op with Walter Koenig, which came out wonderfully. Um, but, yeah, I made an effort to go see his panel. And Walter Koenig's uh, panel, I thought, was, you know, reasonably entertaining. He had some stories. And he talked, of course, again, paid tribute to Nichelle Nichols. And I liked that it never felt like people were doing it in a repetitive way. Everyone had very personal stories about Nichelle Nichols, which didn't feel like the sort of things I'd heard a billion times before. So that was, I think, maybe the value for his panel. A lot of it falls back on people asking this. I don't know how to stop people from doing this, but saying things like, do you wish you got to do more on the original series? Yeah. And invariably, it turns into, you know, an older actor Looking back, being like, I really wish I did. I never got to do the things I wanted to do. And it becomes depressing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And throw that on top of the fact that, you know, we were at Bally's, different setup. So we had big lines behind us um, for autographs, which were very noisy. Walter Koenig is not a young man. His voice does not project magnificently like it once did. And so it was very hard to hear him for us in GA over the din of the autograph crowd. I, I remember there was a moment early on in the convention, I think the first day, where these lines started to form and we were in the very back in general admission. And uh, first our friend uh, Shelly, she started telling people to be quiet and then I tried. And then after, I, I'd say about 20 minutes, you, you had to give up. Like there was no controlling. Like we can get into critiques, but it seems as if there are things with 
in creation's control that were kind of uh, biffed, and there are things that they could have, you know, been better, but I, I'm not going to blame creation too much because it is mostly out of their control there. So that is kind of, I get what you're saying with regards to hearing Walter Koenig's uh, panel there. Um, yeah, jumping over to, uh, I guess, the next day with, uh, you know, the Star Trek Picard panel. Um, one thing that sticks in my memory is, like, uh, somebody walked up to Freaks and asked a question about Stardust City Reg, about, like, the intense violence, uh, extreme violence, uh, you know, Echeb's death, which we've critiqued quite a bit on the show cam. This fan was critiquing uh, Freaks, and Freaks was defensive about it. You know, it, mm. it was a little awkward. But I, I look, if Frakes didn't think there was anything wrong about it, then I don't think he would have been defensive about it. And I think, but what what is he supposed to do? Like, slag a show that's employing him, and he's directing uh, two episodes in season three of Picard. But I, I, I wish there was a better response from the man behind the camera when it came to just a, a, a moment in Star Trek that felt just profoundly disturbing and not in a way that I think the creators intended. I'd have to disagree with you slightly. Not about Stardust City Rag, that is a burning heap of trash. Um, I think Frake's defense was more because he just knows which way his bread is buttered. He's not going to talk down the show that you know is you know, paying for his third condo or something. I don't like. He is a Star Trek director, probably the Star Trek director currently. I don't think he would slag him off for doing it. I think I don't think it's because he's defensive and thinks it was a bad choice. I think he's really much drinking the Kool Aid of uh, the Kurtzman era. I I I I wonder if he could have had a better response. True. Yeah. I, what was his response exactly? He's just like, "We're here to shock you." <laughs> like that was the point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like. Okay, um, because this is a a moment that I I, I wonder if uh, in concept, even concept, it wasn't a very good moment, and no. then execution didn't help it either. Execution, <laughs> execution, <laughs> yeah. Of Egypt. yeah, um, yeah. Like I I understand what he's trying to say when he says he want they wanted it to be visceral and like really for you to understand just the trauma the character went through. I think I more or less understood that Ichab suffered horribly, but. What was being ignored in his answer was the larger narrative of that episode, which is, like, <laughs> people putting on goofy French accents, people demanding feathers in their hats. Like, it's a very goofy... The whole episode is a mess, tonally. And I think that's maybe why people are that much more annoyed or, you know, disturbed by the Echeb stuff, is because it doesn't fit in the episode, but none of that was addressed, so... Um. That panel's quickly followed up by the uh, the Voyager documentary panel, which that's the sort of stuff that I'm really interested in. You had like the uh, the directors, uh, producers from the Voyager documentary uh, come up on stage. They're explaining what they're doing, the people that they're interviewing. They had clips to share. This got me so excited for this documentary that's, I don't know, I get the sense we won't be seeing it before 2024. That's that's my guess. Nope. But um, I don't know, what, what excited you, Scott, about this Voyager documentary? Well, I think out of the three of us, I was the only one to back it. No, so, I did. You did too? Yep. Okay. We have two backers here. And I'm leeching off of you, fellas. Thank you. <laughs> the mooch over here. Yeah. Uh, I, I think seeing the footage was fun and, and knowing that they haven't quite finished yet. They've still got you know interviews to do. So there's, there's, there's still potential. And seeing as the legacy of Voyager is actually currently evolving quite quickly, if you look at what's happening on Prodigy and season three of Picard, it's probably best that they haven't finalized it yet because there might be a completely new chapter to Voyager by the time the documentary comes out. Yeah, for me, like, I was excited to see the footage. The one thing I was hoping they would communicate, because when it came to the DS9 doc, when they were promoting that, they kept saying, 
we are going to have the writers back together pitching a hypothetical season eight. Like that became the core of what they were selling that documentary on. I still don't quite understand what the angle is other than celebration of Voyager. Right. I would like, I, I was hoping this panel would give me something. Well, one thing I thought was interesting is uh, one of the producers from the show, or script coordinator, uh, Lolita Fasho, she was talking about how there's only one person uh, who declined to participate when approached for an interview. She's like, is a behind the scenes person. You wouldn't even know their name. I bet we'd probably recognize their name if they're reaching out to this individual to do an interview. And I, I have my suspicion. I think we won't be seeing Brian Fuller in this documentary. Mm. Uh, he wrote a, a lot of very memorable episodes of Star Trek Voyager, uh, Fury, for example. Uh, but even stuff like uh, uh, Demon. Uh, he did a lot of the more out there sort of Voyager episodes. And of course, he was uh, a co-creator of Star Trek Discovery. And it was a very, very rocky start to that series, and he ultimately departed very early on, you know? And I think he has, like, three script writing credits, and that's about it. And I recall him describing his experience as bittersweet, and I wonder if it's still a little bitter in his mouth wanting to talk about uh, his experience on Voyager, which gave him his start in the Star Trek world. And he, he's a writer that I, I really admire, and so if he does not appear, I'll be disappointed. But we got some insights from... You know, uh, co-creators Jerry Taylor, uh, Rick Berman. Um, we it seems as if Michael Piller will have like archival interviews. Uh, he's passed on another co-creator, and Jerry Taylor. I, I don't know. Like I, I'm, I'm very curious what her experience was like on this show. Like I, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to this documentary. That they said it'll be around two hours long as well. Yeah, and with a hopefully a lot of special features as well. Yes. Because that was one of the things I liked about the DS9 one, was when you went to the special features, they would be talking about episodes that were a lot of fun to hear them talk about, but it didn't quite make sense within a two-hour documentary to be taking time away to talk about, you know, Move Along Home or something like that. So that I'm really looking forward to. I just want to see it. Once again, I'm <laughs> back where I was with the DS9 documentary, where we all, all three of us, you know, submitted money for that, and then basically just sat for what felt like an eternity waiting to see this. Yeah, we got to see it in theaters uh, in Vancouver camp. Did it screen for you? Were we able to catch the Deep Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind in London, uh, Scott? Yes, it screened a couple of places. It screened at the convention that I missed, but it also screened at the Prince Charles Theatre in uh, London in Leicester Square, and I went to the showing, yes. Just that kind of communal experience where it's the, the biggest fans you can imagine there to take in a screening, uh, a, a celebration of Star Trek. And so I really, really hope that we can get some similar screenings for the doc, uh, the Voyager documentary as well. Hopefully. And I also do hope that maybe we get like an Enterprise one after this. Because I think that's a show that's had a lot of reappraisal over the years. And I would like to hopefully one day crowdfunded documentary that will come out, I don't know, 2047, um, that sort of looks at the show, you know, the Star Trek show that was cut short. There's no documentary I want to see more than the Discovery documentary, if only for mm. how chaotic things are, or, you know, were. I think they've calmed down behind the scenes, but it's just, that was a very messy production, at least for the first two seasons, and I want to know what was going on. There's so many non-disclosure agreements that were signed, I think it'll be a few more decades until we really get that. Well, noted Trexpert, Larry Nemechek. Um, on, I think it was the first day of the convention at his panel, so kind of muttered under his breath, um, I would really like to see, like, see the book of the making of Discovery, because yeah. boy, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, okay, so that doc, that uh, uh, documentary panel, it was followed up by one Ron Perlman who played the Praetor in Star Trek Nemesis, and this is a 70-plus-year-old man who has no fucks to give anymore, and it was an amazing, amazing panel. He was joking around, he was getting weird questions, stuff you wouldn't typically ask actors like, um, have you ever had sex with your makeup on? And, um... <laughs> He just looked at them and called this person a degenerate, but people could laugh and go... Like, you could kind of, like, uh, read the room and, and go with it. Um, the moderator kept just saying the names of movies he was in, and Ron Perlman was like, yes, I was in that. And we'll just leave it at that. And that, or like, you know, like, The Island Doctor Moreau. Yeah, I was in that. Marlon Brando, he was in that, too. It was just like, it, it was hilarious. Like, I, I was having a blast. Uh, he had an ongoing joke about... His memoir, he, he was plugging it, and then he kept saying, I'll be selling copies in the parking lot after this. And he kept saying it whenever people would come up. Like, it, like that is that is what a single-person Star Trek panel should be right there. I was getting insights about this guy's career, what it's like to work with Tom Hardy. This was before Tom Hardy became Tom Hardy. This is his first big break, you know? Like, that's the sort of stuff that I, I really wish we had more of uh, throughout this convention. And we were kind of denied... Ron Perlman for a number of years yes. because he was announced and then wouldn't be able to make the convention at the you know the last moment or whatever it would be canceled and uh, and or taken off the list I just say canceled is a loaded word nowadays <laughs> he wasn't canceled people but um, yeah he would be you know couldn't make it um, so like it was great to finally see him and you never really know with some of like the bigger guests they'll bring in sometimes they'd really really deliver and sometimes you're kind of like ah that, that was fine I thought Ron Perlman was hilarious it's clearly a guy who has done a ton of conventions. Because Sons of Anarchy, I know he does just a ton of them. And it was, like, just very low-key humor. Where it's like, you, at first you're kind of like, is this guy just annoyed? And then at a certain point you kind of recognize that it's a very amusing comic persona. Yeah. And just his ability to take even, like, you know, the nerdiest questions and to spin it into a laugh was just, like, masterful. Just, he had an ability to read the room. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just, like, this is a professional convention goer you know so like he was absolutely awesome there so yeah let, let, let's push for more of that sort of stuff i think in the future uh, moving forward there more nemesis panels please well that's just it. so they had promised a screening of both the wrath of khan and nemesis they provided a screen and this is on creation entertainment's website they did provide that wrath of khan screening sort of i mean they did they did but it was on the 26th floor yeah. during like some major panels you know, I, the thing is, that's a movie I don't need to see again for the upteenth time. I would have loved to have been in the room during Nemesis and just see what the audience was like, what they were reacting to, what the energy would have been like in the room for a Nemesis screening, just because that is not a beloved Star Trek film. I, I know Scott is um, uh, your third, fourth favorite film, but you're, you're kind of in the minority there. Well, it, it stars my cousin, Tom, obviously. Great. Right. Tommy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan. I do have a theory. I have a lot of theories today as to why it didn't get screened. Because one thing you'll notice, or you, if you were at the convention, you notice, is there was a lot of Wrath of Khan signage in the convention hallway celebrating the 40th anniversary of the film. There was no Nemesis signage. But it was the 20th anniversary of that film. So my theory is, because of what's going on with Picard, CBS Paramount said, you can't screen it. And so they made things for it and never put them out. I could buy that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of a weird thing to promise and not deliver on. 
Yeah. Well, that's uh, so that's creation here. So. Uh, Kate Mulgrew, uh, it's uh, three cisgender white males sitting here doing a recap of this convention, and uh, we walked away. We've been to Kate Mulgrew uh, panels before, but the way that these uh, so many women uh, spoke in just in pure reverence of her, uh, it, I I was left like kind of astounded, you know. And you can tell what uh, a profound influence she's had on many people's lives. And I, I think she is a presence. She has a certain gravity that maybe, you know, not all the Star Trek captains will have during a panel. But, you know, like, it, that was a truly kind of, like, uh, amazing panel to be at, even if, you know, the Janeway character did not affect me necessarily in the same way. So, I, I mean, that was just very cool to watch everything unfold from there. You did have lizard babies, though. Lizard babies, of course. Uh, yes. <laughs> Well, she's just such a, an emotionally available person, and, and you can see that she genuinely enjoys her interactions with the fans. Um, though, those 45 minutes she's on stage, she's having a blast talking to people and having a bit of a love fest. And it, it's always refreshing when you have you know one of your captains or leads actually talking about how much they like Star Trek. To go back to the old William Shatner and you know, it's just a TV show on SNL or whatever the line was, which kind of ruined a lot of things for him. Whereas you know, Kate Mulgrew has always been very much like pro- Trek and Pro what it can do and it shows in her fans they were on mass shouting adulation at her you can tell which actors can just hold the audience in the palm of their hand mm. and there are i would say not a lot you know who can genuinely just have the entire room just under that's under their spell and like we've seen it say like Shatner at his best yes. you'll get a moment like that Kate Mulgrew does it for 45 minutes straight and, like, the entire audience, it was among the most packed it was for any panel, the entire, you know, four-day um, experience. And her command over that room, and not just, like, inspiring people, but how funny she is, how quick she is, the way she can just take any question, doesn't matter what it is, and turn it into a, like, answer worth listening to. I was saying to you, I think, Tyler, like, I don't know there's another actor who has such command over a room like she does at this point. I, I, I couldn't name one, you know, like at, we've seen, you know, Patrick Stewart at his best. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the one who comes closest. Yeah. I don't think there's any other performer involved in Star Trek that's can, you know, reach Mulgrew levels on a consistent basis. I have a question actually for Scott, because oh, no. Tyler and I never got to experience this. How would you compare her like stage presence to Leonard Nimoy? It's actually a very good, very good comparison there. I think, uh, and for those who don't know, I, I've been attending the STLV since uh, 2007 with some gaps in between. Um, so I saw Leonard Nimoy that year and had a photo up with him uh, before he died, which I'm very thankful I had the opportunity to do so. He is, was one of the warmest I've ever seen. So actually, I, I think maybe that crown has gone on to Kate Mulgrew. Mm. Okay. Well, she's exquisite. If you're ever at a Star Trek convention, she's there. You, you have to do everything possible to go see her. Like, uh, it was an amazing experience. It was my favorite panel of the four days. Mm -hmm. For me, it was Ron Perlman. That one's that <laughs> Tell, probably, Telling everyone to screw off. <laughs> that's probably like one and two yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, I did get to finally do uh, my uh, long-awaited Shatner photo. Dropped a good chunk of change. Uh, it was a fun experience in as much as I could hope for in that, like, I walked up to him. It was over in, I'd say, 2.1 seconds. But I said, uh, hi there. And he said hello back, which is, I think, more than what you can get out of him most of the time. But uh, it, it was interesting in, like, uh, <laughs> with regards to COVID restrictions, they were 
Some actors wearing masks, some actors had uh, the plexiglass. Um, Shatner, this 91-year-old bull of a man, he was, uh, there's a family of six right in front of me, and he was embracing them all, And um, but he also knew that they were uh, uh, paying his wages that weekend as well, because that would have been $300 that that family would have dropped on that photo with him there. Um, so that was about it. Um, the Shatner panel itself, Cam, it was one of the worst Shatner panels I've ever attended. Remember the Fan Expo uh, discussion that uh, we were having a couple months ago when I attended uh, Fan Expo Vancouver, and I, I told you how disappointed I was with him. It had been about three years since I saw him, and he was really gripping like three years ago. I don't think this is a 91-year-old man who's lost a step or two. This man is incredibly with it, incredibly sharp, but he often goes on on tangents where we we like he loses the crowd very easily. There, there. I alluded to this earlier, Cam. What was the whole termite discussion about? So, boy, okay. What was the question that kicked off the termites? I think I think it was something about an episode specifically, or wasn't it? Okay, I remember what it was. Someone asked him um, what it felt like to be, you know, Captain Kirk and have such a influence over, you know, culture. And then also, what would Captain Kirk think of where we are right now, I think? Yeah, what's the advice Captain Kirk would have uh, nowadays, considering where we're at as a society? His and he's like, he's fictional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then his answer to what advice would he give? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, termites being able to have an impact on the broader ecosystem, you could summarize that in about like... 75 seconds he went on for i'd say eight minutes about this and it is he kept going off on these sorts of tangents yes this is a man who still has the ability to captivate crowds but uh, this was not a very good panel at all and like uh, he had a couple moments but i don't know uh, scott was it as painful for you as it was for me Oh, it was it was pretty bad. I mean, I was on my phone for about half of it. Um, I don't which, blame you. Yeah, I mean, you, you you contrast that with Kate Mulgrew, where I was captivated by her presence on the stage for forty five minutes, didn't look down, whereas I think I was looking down for most of it. Also, it was like the last panel on the Sunday, so I think everyone was pretty tired by that point too. Is that right? Yeah. 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 I think we all agree there. And one thing I will also say, we spoke about Ron Perlman before, and he was making jokes about selling his autobiography in in a car. In, in the parking lot after the show he was doing that jokingly I don't think he was actually selling books it was more just a tongue in cheek thing you could tell Shatner was trying to shill things yes. in his presentation his documentaries his TV series he was trying to sell shares of a company that he's involved with <laughs> which I don't know if, there's some sort of fiduciary duty that uh, you know uh, these companies need to um, you know in, ensure going on I don't know it, it was odd it was odd. My favorite was when he was trying to sell us on this book that he's going to be, you know, publishing soon, um, where something like, it's him having thoughts and experiencing vibrations, and I was just staring blankly at the uh, monitor going, I have no idea what this man's talking about, and this was well before the termites came into the picture. Yeah. Yeah. And this guy, William Shatner, recently went into space. I mean, the stories he could say about weightlessness, the experience of, you know, working with... Uh, Jeff Bezos, um, but I think we have five minutes on the the flight. Yeah, I, I did appreciate his story, and also was I had to listen to his entire story back in Vancouver, which was him mm. speaking forty five minutes straight in very similar manner that uh, we're talking about now, but all about the space flight. I got all the details I needed. He summed it up in about four or five minutes, and I thought that was kind of the perfect length right there. But he's just talking about like being in the darkness of space and how it, it was just like is a. He described it almost as like a chilling 
experience for him. But uh, you, you can tell it had an amazing effect on him, you know? Like, so that was cool. He did have a good joke. Uh, uh, Scott, do, uh, you're going to jump in there. Well, I, I just actually want to do maybe give a little bit of credit to Bill Shatner because we were talking about George Takei, Walter Koenig, and Bill, the, the surviving three of the TOS crew. The previous two panels, George and Bill, uh, sorry, Walter, were very much um, quite bleak at times, talking about the actors and their colleagues who've passed away and looking back on their careers very retrospectively and very much looking at, like, well, you know, getting close to that sunset, boys. Um, whereas Bill was just Bill. He didn't really reflect too much. I think he was more just living. Did he say anything about Nichelle Nichols? No, and you know what? I'm going to blame at least a percentage of the panel's quality on the fact that the questions were so terrible. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, because we had the one that I mentioned, you know, about the impact of Captain Kirk. But then it was like things like, you know, in episode X, you know, you had a line. Was that a line originally for Nimoy? Like, who would ever remember that, you know, 50 plus years later? And I don't remember what the third one was, but it was along the same lines. It was something that was equally just like why are you asking this question to a 91 year old man who's not going to remember this and as he said on the stage never really watched star trek so he doesn't have this internalized memory of all these moments like that the audience does had someone said something about nichelle nichols i think he would have spun off into a story about working with nichelle nichols but there was no cue for that yeah and look we all know shatner's a bit of a self-promoter so he's going to come on stage and spend the first 15 minutes or whatever, just promoting whatever he's doing. You kind of got to rely on either a moderator or an audience member to cue him off within a Shell Nichols story, and we just never got that. Yeah. Well, um, jumping off of that, I I, I thought uh, the Voyager panel featuring Tim Russ, uh, Garrett Wong, and uh, Robert Beltran, I thought that was uh, kind of a, a shot of energy I needed on a Sunday afternoon uh, after um, eight days in Vegas. But um, even just stuff, they were getting questions about the episode Tuvix. Mm -hmm. and The Jerry Ryan hadn't seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Jerry Ryan uh, was on that panel as well. But yeah. um, it, it was interesting that, like, I, I think uh, they were just talking about, like, what it meant to the decision, decision to kill off Tuvix. And Garrett Wong was like, she should have, uh, Janeway should have killed off all three of you, like referring to like Neelix, Tuvok, and Tuvix. Tim Russ was busting a gut, like uh, his ribs were hurting uh, just with regards to that delivery there. But um, I don't know, you fellas, you got a Robert Beltran photo. Mm. Um, perhaps to describe that for anyone who hasn't seen that picture there. Well, I, I have a question just before I start, because uh, Scott, I want to hear from you first, but like... Initially, I was the one that pitched to you, let's get a Robert Beltran photo. Were you surprised when I pitched Robert Beltran as the photo we should do together? Um, yes. I, uh, yes. <laughs> of all the people that were at this convention that we haven't had photos with, you're like, it's Chakotay. It has to be Chakotay. And you were talking about painting your face. I'm not sure about that. Something a bit problematic about that. But we did come up with a pose that I think we're both quite happy with the result. Yeah, it was a great photo uh, where we did old-timey boxing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was as good as you can get for, I think, a Chicote photo. I was very happy with a that. A reference to the episode, The Fight, that was focused on Chicote. An episode that Scott and I both hold in very high regard. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but um, Well, Tran was clearly enjoying himself in that photo, that you two strapping young men would, would go and pose with him like that. And he, he played along, too. Yeah, like how would you, ex you know, describe the experience of going up to him? 
Oh, well, I, I asked you to pitch it because usually when we have these goofy photos together, I'm the one who does the uh, the talking. So I thought I'd let Cam do it. Let's see how he gets on. Uh, and, you know, coached Beltran well and Beltran was more than happy to oblige. Um, it is quite funny. I'm sure maybe it will be in the episode art, but uh, you could cut Cam out of that photo and you would not know because me, me and old Bobby Beltran are uh, having a bit of a snuggle up there with our fists up. So, um but yeah, he and he like shook my hand afterwards, and we like slapped him on the back and said like, "Good job." <laughs> he, had, he had a little <laughs> laugh about it. It was it was fun. You never know when you do those photo ops who's going to be like really fun and down to do something kind of crazy versus the ones that won't be. You just never know. And so I've had those conversations with a few stars. Um, most of the ones I've talked to have been willing to you know do a prop kind of joke or something or something like this one. Do a little bit of acting for the photo. I've had a couple, though, that that wasn't the case. But Beltran, I had no idea what to expect. I wasn't sure if he would be a little more, like, you know, self-serious when I went to do the photo. But he was down to have fun. Shatner made me take off my termite costume when I <laughs> went up to go get my photo there. <laughs> do you regret that that wasn't something that, had he done that panel long before, yeah. would you have worn a shirt that said termite or it, something? I should have, you know. Or <laughs> but, um, uh, look, the, as always, uh, we have kind of events in the evening, and we had the Saturday night gala featuring robert picardo and one of his uh lifelong theater friends there um kind of mixed reviews but i i really liked it in which they're singing like these old theater songs a lot of beatles covers um there's some strange youtube videos that uh bob picardo shared that wasn't quite my sense of humor <laughs> but uh, i liked it overall it was about 90 minutes um but i think it it wore on some people but how did you fellas uh take it in at the saturday night gala I would say I'm more of a fan of the orchestra, uh, seeing that show. Uh, I, it was fun to watch Bob go for it, but I, I think my main issue with this show and the other musical performances, including a, a, a quick brief number by Isa Brionis, was the sound. <laughs> oh, dear. The sound mixing by creation at this convention yeah. was abysmal. I don't know if it's the acoustics in the Grand Hall Valleys here in Las Vegas, or it's just the fact that it's their first time and they haven't quite got there and, like, setting set it set out but you thought maybe they would have done a sound check on the wednesday and, and sorted it out they didn't and even by the rat pack on the sunday night which is usually a highlight for me the the acoustics and the sound were horrible there was like horrible like trembling noise the high pitch would just like ring in your ear it wasn't fun yeah anytime you know outside of the musical um performances whenever actors would cross talk Mm. That could get incredibly loud in the room and be completely incomprehensible. Uh, the Isa Brionis mo moment you mentioned that we somehow <laughs> skipped over was one of the... Highlight is the wrong word, but one of the most memorable moments of the entire con for me where that was on the Picard panel where someone asked her about performing in Greece, the play Greece, and she belted out <laughs> a, a you know short section of a song and I think the entire audience was deaf after this happened. Yeah. Like, it blew out my eardrums when she screamed into that microphone. <laughs> well, I think by the end of the Rat Pack, the, the gents, they're professional enough. And we're talking about people like Casey Biggs, Vaughn Armstrong, Matt Grodencheck, Ninov Visitor, uh, Jeffrey Combs. They're, they're all performing, like, kind of those, you know, 60s-era Las Vegas lounge ditties. They're professional enough to figure out that they needed to hold the mics much further away from what they're used to. And that fixed a lot of it but it's still uh, scott i turned to you like early on in, in the rat pack it's like i can't understand like the words coming out of jeffrey combs mouth like it just it sounded like charlie brown's teacher it, it and this is the sort of stuff where this is within creation's control 
this is where I will happily critique creation about here. I there are things like you know the bottlenecks going on in um, the hallways. I understand that you know they're they're understaffed. They have a large enthusiastic crowd, but the sound issues, the spelling errors, like those are unforced issues that creation brought on itself. That's and and in all fairness, like we're not being nitpicky. We're literally paying them money for a service. They're like we're their customers here. That's why I'm I'm happy to um critique those sorts of things. Yeah. And I mean getting back to the Picardo performance for me, I like Scott tend to prefer I think the orchestra um performances because I think it's a tougher high wire act to pull off the Star Trek actor performs music for an hour fifteen or something like that. Like we saw you know Scott and I saw Avery Brooks. No, you didn't, did you in twenty twelve? The Saturday Night Performance. Yeah. No, I didn't go. That was me. Okay. Like, the Avery Brooks one was legendary in what a train wreck it was. Um, but, like, some of the other ones, like Star Trek... I- Isa Briones dropped in. <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek stars on Broadway. Like, just seeing Camille Saviola belt out, there's no business like show business. Like, that was a really fun one of the stars kind of running amok all over the stage doing Broadway numbers. I had a ton of fun at that one. I also like Brent Spiner's um, Old Yellow Eyes is Back or whatever the, na- whatever the name of that concert was. That was also doing kind of older, you know, kind of like uh, Las Vegas-y kind of lounge music. I thought that one was really fun. This one was a mixed bag where it's like I like some of the musical numbers. Other ones, not so much. Um, the skits that you were referring to, Tyler, that they played on the video screens. Um, not your sense of humor? Well, it, it seemed like something almost my dad would have filmed on a Super 8 camera. Yeah. You know, back when people were first getting consumer cameras in their homes. It was a little clunky. Um, I, I guess I appreciated the um, the commitment and the enthusiasm they brought, but it wasn't my favorite Saturday Gala, but it's also not the worst one. So, yeah. Well, it... You know, as we kind of wind things up, but uh, any kind of final thoughts? Because there's a few questions that maybe I want to ask you, like maybe uh, favorite vendor room purchases. But I don't know, any final thoughts on returning to STLV after this three-year absence? Well, I I have two thoughts maybe I should put down. Firstly, uh, I I alluded to at the beginning of the episode, my uh, partner's family came on holiday and they actually are big Star Trek fans. So they attended the creation convention for the first time. And I think one thing I heard back from them, they only attended the Thursday, which is the quietest of the four days. But, you know, they had George Takei, Denise Crosby, some some big names that could headline other conventions. Um, they were left completely underwhelmed by the presentation. I mean, there's a, a there was a museum upstairs that consisted of, uh, Tyler mentioned the VR machine, uh, some replica uniforms, not even ones used on the show, and a few bits and bobs. Uh, and then a bunch of panels they didn't even care about, and then they were just left kind of bemused wandering the corridors of the vendor's room thinking that they were just being sold to. I don't think it was a very welcoming experience for newbies. We can put all these problems aside, like sound and and crowded corridors, because we like the content, but for new people, I think this was a very, very unapproachable version of the convention. And I guess we also had the benefit of just context and tempering our own expectations about what this would involve. I'd also say this. I, I've been to many a convention. Creation entertainment is typically fairly well run. Yeah. Like, like, and you know, if there are problems going on, to me, it 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 tells me that there are a lot of things out of their control here. You know, and so I am looking forward next year 
when they do return to the uh, Rio Hotel Casino, it's off strip. Bally's is right on the strip. That was convenient for us as uh, folks <laughs> staying in a hotel for what seems like three weeks at this point. Um, you know, but but I, I think there's kind of a different vibe when you're off strip and it's a little bit more contained. You're in a bit more of a uh, Star Trek bubble. And I think Creation, it, it's going to be a well-oiled machine. They know what the Rio is all about, the acoustics. Just even, even you have giant halls. There's not going to be the same, like, big bottlenecks where you're shoulder to shoulder the same way that you were here. There's another alien elephant in the room we should address as well in terms of what Scott was mentioning, which is, you know, they didn't feel like they'd been to, like, a real Star Trek convention. This was the first year we'd been back at the convention since um, Creation lost the license from Paramount and CBS to call it, you know, the official Star Trek convention. So... While I did admire, you know, they had big billboards in the hallways with, like, Nichelle Nichols and things like that. Like, it felt like there was some Star Trek-y decorations. I mean, you know, and they did have some Star Trek music in the hallways, which helped. But, like, when you went into the main hall, it was the logo, we are one, one are we, on the wall. And the letter T being plastered everywhere. And view screens. In, in honor of me. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. And, you know, the backdrops for the stage was big, you know, CG renderings of vague sci-fi things. Not Star Trek, but vague sci-fi. And a lot of the, you know, the <laughs> four days was built around the mythology of the Threll. <laughs> yeah. Which... yeah, listeners. The intergalactic Threll Empire that we all know from pop culture. Now, do you want to explain what the Threll are, Tyler? <laughs> you're, you're asking me to? <laughs> So I think what happened is if Creation wanted to stay out of legal trouble, and this is supposition on my part, they had to center, officially center this convention around something not related to Star Trek. And I think Creation Entertainment has created this fictional alien species known as the Threll, and they centered a lot of the decor and accoutrement around this fictional Threll empire, and it all culminated on Sunday afternoon, in which you had 10 selected fans come out in red jumpsuits and sunglasses and stand on stage and had their names called out by um, Adam Malin, the co-CEO of uh, Creation Entertainment. And he was reading, like, a fictional, like, kind of, like, narrative. It was that... almost, almost like a newscast, almost like a War of the Worlds kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was essentially like he was explaining the exposition and like the Threll landed on Earth 100,000 years ago. And listeners, if you're lost, so am I. Yeah. And they're benevolent and they've returned to Earth and they've selected uh, these 10 people in jumpsuits to teleport up to their ship. And Max Grodencheck, he's the 11th person and he comes out in a, a torn up jumpsuit and reveals that the Threll are actually eating humans. And so Adam Halen says... Find out what happens next year, like, to see what happens to people. So the we are one, one are we motto that kind of defines the Threll, it's now going to be a rallying resistance cry that all humans will use against the Threll starting next year at the 57th uh, anniversary convention, or 57th year mission, as they're going to be calling it. Is this cultural appropriation against the Threll? Well, somebody's pointing out, it was actually kind of... Uh, yeah, okay. But uh, it's also kind of like this big ripoff of like a Twilight Zone episode yes. as well. And I was like, okay. There was one person in the face, one of the Facebook groups who was on stage, and she was like, believe me, as somebody who was up on stage, I didn't know what was going on either. Like, I had no idea what this was meant to be. 
This was one of the highlights of the entire it convention was. because we, we, we were just looking at each other the whole time, ridiculing what was unfolding on stage. There was a lot of confusion in the auditorium. And I saw the punchline coming from a mile away because they'd printed on their website and sent you know emails to everyone who bought tickets about this like Threll event. And as soon as I saw them talking about this ancient document called To Serve Humanity, whatever, I think that was the name of it, I, I knew the gag because I... I haven't seen the Twilight Zone episode, but I have watched The Simpsons, and there is an episode that plays completely off of that, and I've seen it dozens of times. So the fact that that was the punchline they had, it was like, okay. Um, I don't even know what to make of this panel. It was an hour of madness that I am there for. So if they want next year to gather us all together about the war against the Thrill, that's fine. But going back to, you know, a few minutes ago, Scott's point about, you know, his family going to the, you know, to the convention um that would be baffling and i think it shows that like they haven't branded this in a way that a newcomer to the convention could ever understand i mean people who were long-term con goers who are taking part in the actual panel didn't know what was going on so i think there is an issue with the thrill element i don't know of a, of a fix um i, I don't know I we're just don't in, know. We're in it for the thrill of the chase, I suppose. That's true. Uh, Cam, you also asked me this question. I think you posed it to Scott as well. This is yesterday. You're like, let's say Creation Entertainment suddenly gets the Star Trek, the official Star Trek license back. Do they drop the Thrill Empire thing like a hot potato starting next year? Yeah. I'd say yes. Like a sack of shit. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. Vendor's room purchases, uh, fellas. Um... I ended up getting a uh, a Cerritos, you know, uh, Star Trek Lower Decks com badge. Uh, just beautiful, life size, magnetic. Uh, just I, I, you guys have seen me holding it in the palm of my hands uh, on and off for the last few days. Uh, that was kind of probably my favorite uh, vendor's room purchase, despite spending much more money on the William Shatner photo op. Uh, for me, quite a quiet year when it comes to vendors room purchases but i had my eye on an original playmates mid-90s tng tricorder uh it was marked as 80 dollars. i eventually got it for 55 dollars, which is uh, pretty much steel uh even if you look on ebay now this is mint in a box unopened the 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 real big fu about that purchase is on the side there's a toys r us sticker for nine dollars <laughs> so uh inflation is a bitch yeah. <laughs> For me, I didn't buy a lot either. I did buy a uh, Mirror Mirror t-shirt. I, there's that whole brand or the whole line of TOS shirts that came out. I think it was 2013 where they put out where it would say the episode title and then a shot from the episode. And I love these shirts. I bought a number of them. I wish I could go back to 2013 and just buy like a whole like whack of them versus at the time I bought one. All right. Um, especially one of the one, one of the ones like say like a, a touch of Gideon or something like the really obscure ones. But I got the mirror mirror shirt. But I also went by April Tatro's um table and got an autographed photo. She played Isis the cat in Assignment Earth. That's one of my favorite things to do at these cons is to find some of these older TOS guest stars, get an autographed photo. Um, I also got a selfie with her. Um, that was a I didn't know I was signing up for a selfie, but I got one nonetheless. Um, <laughs> well, explain that story. So I went up, and I just wanted the autographed photo, um, you know, the iconic shot of Isis. And when I handed in my $30, because it was $30 for the photo, the the person helping her at her booth um, said, so you'd like the selfie too? And I was like, 
oh, okay. Like, I just got the impression from the way he delivered this that I guess a selfie was included. Right. No. And then he was like, $10, please. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I now have a <laughs> selfie with her as well. But she was very delightful. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to have that added to my autograph collection. Oh, excellent. Um, I'll say this. Like, this kind of went as well as I could have hoped for. I mean, we had our complaints. Uh, but look, creation... I think it was mostly imposed by the hotel, like kind of the safety things, but it did make me feel safer. I am happy that at this point, none of us got sick uh, in a foreign country. You know, I, I hats off to bringing back kind of uh, the convention experience again and making it feel like I was back at a regular Star Trek convention in the normal times. I, I genuinely enjoyed this trip here. There is one thing I do hope changes though next year, and we still haven't figured out whether it was a Bally's thing or a creation thing. The schedule for the convention felt very compressed this year. It started later than usual. It seemed to end earlier than usual. And because of that, you know, Tyler, you were saying about the 26th floor. I felt like I didn't get to see much of the 26th floor because there's just major panels happening down on the bottom that I was, like, in for. So I'm hoping if we go back to the Rio next year that maybe we go back to the older schedule where we have panels starting maybe, like, you know, 9 a.m. versus, like, 10.30. Yeah. So that would help spread things out and maybe cut down on some of these nine-person panels. Okay. Yeah. So uh, overall, I, I guess we had fun. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So next week, we will be catching up on Star Trek Lower Decks. I think we've got like three to go because we've been here in Las Vegas. Actually, our friend group, we all got to hang out in Cam and my room and uh, watch the uh, season three premiere all together. And it was great. We, we, we all had like communal chuckles together at uh, what was going on, and uh, we quite enjoyed ourselves. And it, it almost felt like a magic carpet ride. Wait, wait a second. Now I'm suddenly like thinking, is this the only time I've watched an episode of Lower Decks with another human being? It might have been. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think I've ever watched one with someone else. Yeah. Wow. Well, there you go. There was actual laughter like from a communal audience versus myself alone in my apartment. Muttering. <laughs> yeah, muttering <laughs> under my breath. <laughs> Uh, what was your experience like uh, watching Lower Decks in a communal atmosphere, Scott? It was it was fun to... Because sometimes when you watch things as a group, someone will laugh at something and then you'll laugh at it too. And it's like a chain reaction. And I think if you're sat alone watching your laptop in your house, you could maybe just go huh, to a lot of jokes. But there was up, you know uproar at times during the episode. And not to spoil anyone's thoughts on the episode, uh, whether it's good or bad. But I think as a group, it was a nice experience to watch it together. I only laugh when other human beings indicate that I should, mm. and I just follow along. That's why you want the old-timey laugh tracks on all your sitcoms. That's why uh, I would love to be on the Discovery ship watching uh, old uh, movies from uh, Buster Keaton. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just non-stop laughter. I'm down for that. Yeah. You can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in volume of Isabrionis' voice, <laughs> Smith. <laughs> you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P is in... Perlman's got it going on. O-R-T-O-N. And if you want to hear more from me, you can find me at Spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S. S as in, should have stayed at the Rio. Yes, of course. Scott and I co-host the Spyhards movie podcast. So yes, check that out wherever you get podcasts. But until next time, the arena is closed.
Transfer complete.